0: <laughs> but this was really
1: 1981 the
0: to the rock and roll nightmares podcast i'm your host stacy lane wilson author of the rock and roll nightmares book series and director of the documentary the ventures stars on guitars this is your destination for all things rock where the interviewees include musicians authors historians filmmakers and more and now on to the show My guest today is the Emmy Award-winning documentarian Rudy Valdez, the director of a new feature about the legendary Carlos Santana. Rudy has made a variety of films, from the bump and grind of Getting Naked, a burlesque story, to a look at his own sister, Cindy Shank's wrongful conviction and overly harsh prison stretch in The Sentence, which was released in 2018. In Carlos... Rudy gives us an insider's view to Santana's world through interviews, home videos, behind the scenes moments, and rare archival footage. So let's get Rudy on the line. Well, hi, Rudy. Thank you for this.
1: Hi, Stacey. Thank you.
0: Yeah, well, I watched the documentary, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. There are so many ways to approach making um, a music documentary and a Biographical documentary. So, how did you choose to take the direction you did?
1: Uh, you know, it's it's interesting because when when we first started this project, you know, obviously you look at, at Carlos's career, and it's such a vast career that yeah. that spans decades in genre and and you know all of these different uh, eras of music that he sort of navigated through. And so I'll I'll be honest, it was a bit overwhelming (laughs) at (laughs) first because I was like, where do you you even start? Uh, But, you know, I think right away, one of the first things that struck me about Carlos was his ability to be such a wonderful storyteller. You know, we started talking about Woodstock. We started talking about, you know, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. And he had just these amazing stories and the amazing recollection, you know, down to like the smell and the sounds of each of these places. So immediately I thought, you know, this can be a, a film that is fully in his voice and in his music. You know, his music is also the, the foundation, the bed of the, the, uh, the score that you hear underneath the music. It's all in his hands. And so once we started um, uncovering these these stories of his and having these conversations and interviews and recording all of that, we then sort of dove into the archive which as you can imagine is pretty vast <laughs> and uh my next sort of rec- uh, revelation about it was you know not only am i going to try and live in carlos's voice as much as possible i'm going to try and live in the time frame as much as possible because um we can track his entire life his musical career his spiritual journey all through the archive. And so I immediately said, you know, I'm not gonna speak to contemporary artists or other people, um, other musicians and have them sort of reflect back on Carlos. I'm gonna let it sort of live in the archive. So all of that just started to come together as we started to get all of these pieces um, that were at our disposal.
0: Yeah, that is a departure from the typical music documentary where you have other musicians commenting. And you do have a lot of music and footage, which can be quite difficult, I know, from having made a music documentary myself. (laughs) Now, how did you get the clearances to use Fillmore and Woodstock? And does Carlos still own the rights to all his music? Or how did that all work?
1: Yeah, so we had a wonderful... um archivists on our team and producers on our team that, you know, obviously there's a lot of footage that um, is tough to that is expensive to to get and <laughs> that just doesn't mm-hmm. exist for for general but as you know making a music documentary um so i was able to navigate with my my team and my producers of like what's accessible what is there for us and you know i really let them handle a lot of the permissions and things like that and and i was like you know can i use this and they were like uh, we can try <laughs> you know uh, so right. it was a lot it was a lot of me trying to say, you know, let me just see what I can get my hands on and make the best version of this, and then we can sort of go through and figure out the permissions and the whether it's in our budget and, and things like that. But um, I had a wonderful team around me that was really helping me navigate that in a way that didn't make me feel as though um, I was too constrained by by some of those things because you know uh, it can be it can be difficult when you have. Beautiful footage in front of you, and they're like, Yeah, you can't use that. (laughs) So, so, uh, you know, navigating those waters is is always tricky.
0: Exactly. Well, I want to know like, take it back to the beginning. How did the project come about? Did you know Carlos, or was this presented to you, or did you present it to him?
1: No. So, I was doing uh, another project with Imagine Documentaries, and, you know, it was interesting because I was reading, I would you know uh, the trades pop up sometimes on your phone, and and I saw you know imagine documentaries is in talks to do a Carlos do- uh, Carlos Santana documentary, and not that I felt like I deserved the right to make the documentary, but I was like oh I would have loved to work on something like that, uh-huh. and um you know and I was like I wonder who's making it, and, and, you know I almost called them to say I'll do whatever I can, like I'd love to to be a part of it in any way, and you know, I had a meeting with Justin Wilkes and Sarah Bernstein over at at Imagine. And, you know, they were talking about like, what's next? Like, what else do I want to do? And I'd actually presented them a different music documentary. And they were like, oh, you're interested in doing music. And I said, yeah. And they're like, okay, well, let us get back to you. And then they got back to me and they said, what do you think about the possibility of meeting Carlos Santana and I might have said yes before they even finished their sentence <laughs> and right. so n- next thing I knew we were on a plane to Vegas to go and watch him at the House of Blues as as uh, at his residency and you know we discussed it and I think everybody kind of thought maybe I'm I'm the right person to tell the story and you know even after hearing some of those words in that sentence I was like is this are you for real? Like, is this, is this is this really happening? Because it's you know it's uh, in in the media landscape, you know, you're often yeah. You know, it, it's tough for people to see you outside of of things you've already made. And I had to to that point, up until that point, not made you know a big music documentary or biography like that. You know, I'd made you know a, a pretty diverse. Um, group of films up until that point, but I'd never made that leap to the music biography. So I was so grateful that everyone was willing to uh, understand that uh, I'm a storyteller and that I can tell a lot of different types of stories. And they really, I think, took a chance on, on letting me tell this story. And I'm forever grateful for that.
0: Well, what was it about Carlos's music that attracted you in the first place? Because like you said, there is a great width and depth and breadth to his whole career. It's it's spanned many decades. So what is your favorite Carlos era? And when did you first hear his music?
1: I mean, I heard his music at a very young age. Um, my my mother used to play it, you know, when she would clean the house on Sundays, she would play mm-hmm. Santana, among a lot of other musicians. But um you know, Santana's music always stuck out to me, and I would hear it throughout the years, but to be honest with you, one of the things that really stuck out to me about Carlos, and one of the reasons I'm so grateful for having the opportunity to tell the story, is, you know, towards the end of my high school career, and going into college, I discovered that I had a knack for storytelling, you know, I was an actor, and I was a writer, and I wanted to figure out what what that meant for me, And and, and somebody who looked like me, you know, I grew up in the in the Midwest, in in Lansing, Michigan. And so I, I looked out into the media landscape to try and find people who looked like me to see the path that they had uh, taken. And what I continued to see over and over again were these sort of stereotypes and tropes that, um, you know, of the of the prisoner, of the of the drug dealer, of the gang member, of the, you know, sort of East Coast uh, Latino, of the West Coast Latino. And I never saw anybody who really looked like me. And, and, and it was a little disheartening at times and then you know my mother reminded me about carlos santana this was you know in high school and pointed out like here's somebody who looks like you who didn't allow anyone to put him in a box that really you know they they she was like they probably told him to play cumbias and to play mariachi music and then that's what he needed to play if he wanted to be a musician but he broke out of that so this is something i was learning you know in the late 90s you know around the time supernatural came out and so he was always this person in the back of my mind that I used as a model to say, listen, I don't have to be what other people tell me I'm supposed to be. I can break out of that and I can tell all kinds of stories. I can be any kind of actor, any kind of writer. And so, you know, to be honest, I never really told Carlos that, that story because I didn't want to sort of mess up the relationship that we had as professionals. Uh-huh. Um, but he was certainly somebody that I look up to. Um still to this day, as, as somebody who's just like, I'm going to go for something. I'm going to be the person, the storyteller, the the entertainer, the the creative that I want to be, and I'm going to go for that. And so I, I, it just felt very um, as much as I was grateful for the for the opportunity to do the project and tell the story, I was also uh, in some ways, it felt very full circle to me because it 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 meant a lot that I, that I got to have my hands on, on, on this, the story and putting it out into the world.
0: Yeah. Well, I love how he describes himself in the documentary as far in, as opposed to far (laughs) out. (laughs) So I'm wondering, yeah, what was your first impression of him and how did it change over time as you got to know him and making this film?
1: Well, you know, what's funny is, you know, over the course of, of, um, my career and even, you know, as a younger actor, you know, you would always hear those, those, that, that, um That line, you know, never meet your heroes, never meet your heroes right uh, because you're always going to be disappointed and you know if i'm being honest, there were a couple other times where I'd met other people that I'd looked up to, and I was very underwhelmed uh by that, and so I was a little nervous when when I flew out uh with Imagine to go and see Carlos because you know we went backstage and and uh, I was like, please, please don't let me down. It's <laughs> like, please, please be all these things. And, um, and he's talking and he's talking to Sarah and Justin. And then he looks over at me and he looks me dead in the eyes. The first thing he says to me, and he says, do you believe in magic? And I was like, uh, um. <laughs> you know, I didn't really know what to say. He said, not David Copperfield, not David Blaine. You know, and this is in the film, actually. Uh, he says, not David Copperfield, not David Blaine. Like those are illusions. He was like, I'm going to show you real magic and i was like oh, and we're off <laughs> you know it was uh-huh. just so wonderful to see it. and you know and it was just wonderful how uh how amazing you know his take on life and and especially the take on his journey and his spiritual journey and music it's it's wonderful it's tangible and you know i think one of the things that i really um enjoyed about our time together and making this is you know a lot of people don't fully realize because because he's such uh sort of a, a, a guitar you know one of the greatest guitar players and because he's all of these other things in the spiritual journey I think one of the things that really gets lost about him is that he's actually very funny he's got a really wonderful sense of humor so it was just it it's a long that's a long way to say he did not let me down when I met him you know he was he was all of these things that I that I'd hoped he he would be and I, and I think even more yeah he's
0: the real deal for sure um yeah, yeah. And people knew that from the very beginning, you go into the story of how Bill Graham and Mm Clive Davis both really believed in him. And uh, what do you think it was in him that they saw as a very young man before he was really fully philosophically developed and and musically developed?
1: I think authenticity. You know, I think that he, you know, just when you talk to him, he feels so grounded and so sure. And he's Clearly, by the time I was able to sit down with him, he's lived an amazing life. But, uh, but when you see early interviews, you see this this old soul. You see this person that is very grounded and very sure of who they are. And I think that that attracts people like like Bill Graham, like Clive Davis. When this you know nineteen twenty year old picks up a a, a guitar and and you know at, at what at twenty one goes to Woodstock and just. Yeah. Absolutely brings the house down, and just that confidence and that authenticity and that that pure talent. I mean, how do you not gravitate towards that as a Clive Davis, as a Bill Graham? <laughs> I mean, that's I mean, there he's a generational talent, you know. So um, yeah, and, and and you still feel that to this day when when he sits in front of you, and, and uh, there were a, a couple of real pinch me moments during this process where you know, I'd be in their rehearsal studio or whatever. And it's just me and Carlos uh, and I'm holding a camera and he just, you know, puts on a guitar and just starts playing. And I'm looking around and I'm like, this is unbelievable. (laughs) One of the greatest guitar players ever is sitting in front of me. and just sort of pulling me in with the notes and with the music. And it's like, it's just flowing out of him. Like it, like it has to, you know? So um, I think authenticity it's he he's, he's the real deal.
0: He talked about some other artists who influenced him and who were influenced by him as well. Um, did you come to appreciate any other artists or types of music in the process of making this film? I bet you learned a lot that you didn't know.
1: Yeah, I mean, there, there are so many people. I mean, obviously, you know, you hear about Javier Batiste, uh, one of the first people to kind of uh, teach him about the guitar, but also, you know, Miles Davis and B.B. King and Wayne Shorter. And, you know, there are so many amazing musicians that he you know Jimi hendrix uh you know there are so many amazing musicians that he really honors and he really um respects you know immensely and, and it's so fun because even when he's not playing music he's living music he's listening to music he's sharing music he I, i'm not going to show you too much but he just texted me some some new, <laughs> new music on my phone a little wow. while ago so He's, and it's how he communicates and how he loves to be in the world and share the world. And so it's constant music all of the time. And it's it's really wonderful to see somebody that loves it so much and is able to, to really uh, live their world through music, not only their own, but honoring all of the people who who inspire him as well.
0: Absolutely. And he is inspirational. Um, a friendly acquaintance of mine, Mickey Free, who's uh, played with... yeah uh carlos on stage just recently he posted a video on instagram about how he was having some trouble with his guitar and um carlos handed him his guitar and said you know play it and how giving he is and how giving of his time and his talent
1: yeah it's you know i don't want to divulge too much just because i had you know some pretty uh uh I don't want to say intimate conversations, but like some pretty deep conversations with some of the people around him. And in short, I was like, you know, because many of them have been with him for a very, very long time. And I think they all shared the same sentiment of, you know, it's the best job in rock and roll, you know, because he's, he's so giving, uh, musically uh spiritually you know as a friend as a and and they're like you, you know you don't meet a lot of people like this in any you know part of the world let alone in this industry that mm-hmm. you just feel the love all the time and so you know many of them are just like I, you know how do you not continue to want to be here and, and 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 be the best you know with him all the time and so that that was just this constant thing around him all the time not only was he putting out this uh this energy of just like doing the best you can making the best music but it's it's something that his entire sort of team believes in all the time and that's just a wonderful space to be able to navigate and and spend time with people so it's it's truly uh it's amazing it really is
0: uh, yeah, I and mean, you touched earlier on the supernatural album of the 90s, which really brought him back into the public eye. He's kind of seemed to, I don't want to say, go away in this in the late 70s or 80s, mm-hmm. but um, you know, he was doing other kinds of music that wasn't as commercial. So how does someone say, you know, like him say, okay, I'm gonna have a commercial hit? And he did. I mean, it's just crazy how perfectly well, he was able to orchestrate and navigate his career because a lot of those things are beyond people's control,
1: right? And I think that you know what he did with supernatural with with Clive Davis for anyone to have been able to do that is remarkable. You know, it's it's you know you you don't you, I, I can you know it's what well, he uh, matched what Michael Jackson that night on the amount of Grammys that he won, but just you know for anyone to be able to do that is unbelievable. And I think one of the things I love about the film is that even people who first recognized him because of Supernatural, like a lot of people in my generation were like, oh, Supernatural came out when we were you know, in high school, or like early uh-huh. college. And it was this thing that you hear all the time. But then, so maybe that's why you come and you watch this film, but then to watch the journey that led up to Supernatural, the the, you know, because I do think that, that magic of supernatural is a culmination of all of that work he was doing before he, he may have um, sort of left the, the immediate spotlight, you know, for a little while, but I think he was always on that edge. He was always there because he was always making wonderful music that meant something to him. And then, you know, there's that line in the film where, where Clive says, you know, Carlos says, I want to bring the molecules to the light, you know, and, and he translates it and he says, what he means is he wants to make a commercial-friendly <laughs> record. And so it was like Carlos needed to do all of these other things and take this journey. And he felt supernatural. He felt it in him before anyone else did. And so it was just amazing to see that you know, manifest and come out in the way that it did.
0: Yeah, I absolutely love that part of the film. And I want to just wrap it up now, but to, to <laughs> ask um, what is next for the film, where can people watch it? And also I'd just like to know, what are some of the, the best um, bits of feedback that you've gotten from people who've watched the movie?
1: yeah so we're uh I know that they're doing a release September 23rd 24th and 27th as part of a special sort of global event that they're doing which again like pinch me moment that a documentary is going, yes. going out into the theaters in in this day and age but uh it's amazing and it's been amazing to see all of the people um uh I see on on the internet and you know saying we can't wait we're buying our tickets and you know and then to even see like, you know, my mom and my dad calling me like, we already have our tickets. That's been a <laughs> lot of fun that they're going to go in and, and watch it in theaters. Um, and then also the, on those special days, there's a, a special intro that Carlos and, and I uh, pre-taped that you'll get to hear a little bit more about the film before it starts. Um, and I'll say as far as feedback that, that I've gotten, you know, if I'm being a hundred percent honest, like I don't read reviews and at all. And that's just because I'm, too fragile. <laughs> like I'm, I'm not, I'm not like good or bad. Like I'm, like oh, it, it, if people are watching it, it's, it's totally fine. But I will say, one of the early things that I heard that made me feel really, really great and made me feel like the approach was the right approach. Um, somebody watched it that was uh, that knew Carlos pretty well, and they said, you know, I loved it. I loved watching this journey. I loved. Uh, they were like, even I learned things that I didn't know about Carlos, which was huge to me. And, and then they said, and I think the best part about it was people are going to be able to experience what it's like to hang out with Carlos. It felt like you were hanging out with Carlos, not like you were, you know, there was a camera set up and you're doing this like sit down interview. But it, it I wanted this film to be very intimate because I did want you to experience navigating the world through Carlos's music and his eyes and his hands. And so that was a really wonderful comment for someone to say, it really felt like you were just hanging out with Carlos and hearing his stories, uh, which that was the hope.
0: Well, you absolutely achieved that Rudy. And thank you so much for being on the podcast and best of luck with the film and your future endeavors.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
0: I haven't been doing readings from the Rock and Roll Nightmares books lately, but since I do have a work in progress, I'd like to share some of it with you. Rock and Roll Nightmares, Blood on the Tracks is my next book, and the first chapter gives the backstories on songs that were inspired by true tragedies. The song is Annie Christian by Prince, which came out on his Controversy album in 1981. Annie Christian is a fictional amalgam of a supposed God-fearing society, her name playing on Antichrist, and her skewed values calling ours into question. Prince's lyrics tie in several topical tragedies, including the satanic panic, serial killer Wayne Williams' Atlanta child murders, Mark David Chapman's shooting of John Lennon, and the assassination attempt on then-president Ronald Reagan. There's another song on the album, an anti-war anthem called Ronnie, Talk to Russia." Like many musicians, Prince was hard hit by the news of Lennon's violent death at the hands of a so-called fan. What's more, he was probably rattled while playing a show the following night on December 10th, 1980, just over a mile from where the former Beatle breathed his last. The early 80s were, in general, a dark time in the U.S., what with the apocalyptic anxieties coming to the fore, not only in pop culture, but there were numerous high profile evangelists predicting the end of times. While the famous doomsday clock was set at four minutes to midnight, which was the closest the world had come to global devastation since the 1950s. Christian is a stylistic punk funk synth experiment on which the purple one played all the instruments or program them as the case may be, and quite a departure from his more familiar hooky and melodic tunes. Prince didn't comment on Annie Christian specifically, but he did once tell an interviewer, so much has been written about me and people don't know what's right and what's wrong. I'd rather them stay confused. This concludes another episode of the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast remember there's a book series too all the books are available in paperback ebook and audio via amazon or the rock and roll nightmares website that's r-o-c-k-n-r-o-l-l-nightmares.com our official theme song is she's out for blood by fuzzbuster founded by lars cabot